Well, I've already been blessed. I hope you've been uh, blessed as well. Uh, the message that I want to give this morning, I'm going to warn you about that there are milk sermons. Uh, the Bible talks about milk and it talks about meat. And Hebrews talks about it. Um, this is a meat sermon. Like this is going to take some thinking on your behalf. And uh, it, is, it is deep in theology, okay? So if you're in that tired mode and you're refreshing your phone and checking social media, you're probably going to miss the whole thing, okay? So I really want you to pay attention uh, because if you just listen to that passage, when you read it, you're like, what in the world is that talking about? And my vision for you is that by the time we are done in 35 minutes, you will know what that passage is talking about. Because some would argue it's the most important passage in all of the Bible. So if you understand this, you kind of understand the whole thing. And if you don't understand it, you probably won't understand the whole thing. So I, I give that to you as a little precursor to say, uh, buckle your thinking caps on and let's go. So I'll start off with a little bit of whipped cream to just get your minds moving. Uh, I've entitled the message, The Leader You've Been Looking For. My question to you is this, you know, it seems like in the news we're always talking about leaders, and it seems like no matter what channel you turn to, it's all about what we don't want leaders to be, or they're ripping the face off of another leader. Uh, if you read Milton Friedman's book, Failure of Nerve, you will see that the climate he talked about 20 years ago is actually what's happened in America, and... Uh, good people will not step up to leadership anymore because of how toxic it has become to be a leader. No matter what you do, if you stand for something, you are just going to be castigated, and most people don't want that. What kind of leader do you want? If I were to throw, I'm going to flash some pictures up here, and I want you to kind of respond like, yeah, I could follow that person. That person seems like a good person to me. I, I enjoy what that person stands for, and, you know, that could be somebody I could follow. And you could do that by snapping your fingers, everybody snap. You could give a little whoop, like, woohoo! Let's do that. Uh, I'm not really asking for moans and boos, okay? <laughs> it's eventually going to come out, I'm just saying. In the house of the Lord, let us be kind. So I'm going to throw up a picture, and I want you to kind of react. Uh, when it comes to this leader now, you know, it could be like, yeah! That gets a couple snaps. It could be like, whoa, you know, you're like that. Got it? Get the exercise? All right. The sermon gets deeper after this, but we're going to start off with this. Let's go. Bill Gates. Yeah, pretty mediocre response. Gives away a lot of money, but he's making, he's worth more than he was when he gave all his money away. The burn, anybody feel the burn? Like 10 people feel the burn? Okay. Oprah. Well, so far, Oprah beats Bill Gates and beats Bernie Sanders. <laughs> I told you no booing, okay? I think four people snapped. Let's try Elon Musk. What do you think about him? I mean, he's kind of pushing us all forward. Henry, you like him? Double snaps for Henry. How about Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi? You guys don't like anybody. What's your problem? <laughs> or how about this guy? This picture's a little creepy. Jeff Bezos. Folks, you are all, you tithe to him already. You give him at least 10% of your income, right? <laughs> Richest man in the world. 
Or how about the lovely Michelle? <laughs> we just found out who should really be running for president. Uh, Pope Francis. Well, yeah, Pope is probably in third place right now. Or how about the front runner after Biden? Only like two Warren people, okay. Maybe I should just get off that bandwagon. Maybe we should just set our sights in a different place. <laughs> I didn't expect that, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Rogers. I mean, this probably shows you the state of our country. I love this. Or maybe we should just give up. And uh, Kevin Hart, or if you're a Gen Xer, Yoda, baby. Um, all of these evoke some emotion in you to some degree or another. Um, because we look for leaders, and I would say there's, there's uh, probably psychology under why you actually snapped at some and cheered for some and didn't for others, because we long for a great leader. The problem is, every leader I put up here has been tainted by the fall in Genesis chapter 3, so we're always going to be somewhat disappointed. Even those in our neighborhood who voted for Barack Obama, if you talk to them now, they're disappointed that they didn't get more out of his uh, tenure uh, as president, right? There's still some disappointment, or I wish you would have pushed harder, or I can't, I mean, I hear people criticizing him today for um, basically where he's standing and trying to be more of a centrist in the Democratic Party versus letting it be taken over by the far left. What is it about these leaders evoke those things in you? And I, I think it boils down to the fact that most leaders, if we think they're a good leader, they blend two really important qualities. One is this kingliness and authority, like they're in control of things. And the other is this compassion and redemptive side, right? I want a good leader with a big heart, okay? You guys kind of did that all the way throughout until we got to Mr. Rogers. I don't know how much of a leader he was. He was really the compassionate heart one, and he got the loudest applause. And maybe it's because of the poverty of our culture right now. We want someone who can make a decision and tell us what needs to get done, but also forgives us when we don't get it done, right? That's, that's the kind of boss you want, right? My boss at Cross Purpose is D. Scriven. D is a great boss for me. I meet with her every single month. I run through my to-dos. She holds me accountable to that. She makes sure I'm not late with my assignments. Um, but then we start out the conversation the first 20 minutes of our meeting. She's talking about my kids and, you know, have I been restful and have I... Am I, am I living a healthy life, right? She's, a, she's just a great uh, boss for me. If we go back to Bible times, Israel was really longing for that same kind of leader. And there were two kinds of leaders. One would fit into the category of Mr. Rogers. He would be more of the priestly nature as a leader. The problem was is that the pagan cultures nearby in Israel... Uh, built huge temples, and they were led by men who controlled religious life, but they were detached from the people. But then you go into the people of God in the Jewish community, and though that priesthood had been corrupted by moral debauchery, greed, uh, gluttony, ambition, and arrogance. And so a group was formed to actually say, we want to actually replace the corrupt priesthood. They were very pious and devout individuals, and they believed that actually if they could restore the priesthood to like really good leaders, that heavenly armies of angels would bring about the messianic age in a holy war. These were called the Essenes. If you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls came from the Essenes in the Qumran community. They wanted good priests, 
good, like heartfelt leaders. But then there was also one that said it's not going to happen. Reform is not going to happen through the priesthood. It's going to happen through the kingship and through political leadership. Well, if you looked at Rome's leadership, it was excessive taxation. They did peacekeeping via violence. They did capital punishment by crucifixion. So that wasn't really a good picture of kingship for them. Uh, And so this group formed with little guerrilla bands that would live in the hills and try to, like, take over the government. They were armed with daggers and swords, and they wanted to counter Rome's influence. These were called the zealots. Let's, let's reform what political leadership looks like. I would say that if you, what do you want in a king? We want somebody who's got good kingliship qualities and good priestly qualities. The closest the children of Israel ever got was David. David seemed to have that ability to lead well, lead people in battle, but then, you know, he, he would pen Psalm 51 about how to repent of your sins and be cleansed. And he could give direction and sing a song. This was the kind of guy he was, and he had, but he had feet of clay. And the way God set it up in his world and the children of Israel was that there was one line that would produce the kings and one line would produce the priests. The line of Judah would produce the, the leadership and the line of Levi would produce the priests. And the two would never cross. In fact, Saul, if you think about it, he was a king, and you know Samuel didn't show up, and he actually uh, ordered the sacrifices to be made, and he lost his kingdom over it, because kings didn't do what priests did, and, and, and vice versa. So, Old Testament prophecy said that there would actually become a future deliverer. They, in their minds, it was a king from the line of David, and they would have this leader that they could follow. Uh, I'm going to skip back up through somehow my PowerPoint restarted. And we go to Matthew 22, and it says this. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great, greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. You've heard that before. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And then he goes into this. I mean, you probably have heard that passage I just read many times. But then he says this, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? In other words, the Messiah, whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. In other words, the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. He's going to be this kingly person from that line. How is it then, he says, that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. He stumped them with Psalm 110. Well, what does that all mean? I mean, it just sounds like gobbledygook to me, right? What is Jesus talking about here? He's referring to Psalm 110 that Joy read. And it is the seminal psalm in the entire book. It is the most oft-quoted psalm in the entire New Testament, The community of first century Christians knew this, they had it memorized, they meditated on it, they discussed it, and it shaped their identity as the people of God because they were looking for the person who Psalm 110 was talking about. And David, when he became the king, every king of Israel, when they became king, they would actually go to the sacred scriptures, there would be a handwritten copy made so that the king would have his own copy of the scriptures, and he would read the scriptures over and over again. It is evident through David's writings that as he got older as a king, he realized 
that there was going to be a king that was going to come that was going to be greater and set up a righteous kingdom that would last forever. And David knew that. Well, when David penned Psalm 110, it is an oracle. There are actually two oracles in that psalm. It is an oracle with two explanations. And it starts off with this phraseology, the Lord said to my Lord. Now that is the key almost to the entire passage. The Lord said to my Lord. In that real phrase, there are three people represented. You have God the Father, the Lord, that is Yahweh in the Hebrew, okay? Said to my Lord, that is Adonai. That is not God the Father, right? That is God the Son. David's saying, God the Father said to my, my Lord, the Son of God, right? That's the conversation there. David was not the Lord. He was not the ruler. David was saying, somebody else is my Lord. So there's this conversation happening between God and God. Like I said, the theology gets deep here. We believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there are only about a half dozen times in Scripture where we're let into their conversations. You probably should pay attention when that happens, right? Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man in our image. That is an inter-Trinitarian conversation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit said, let's make man together. Now in Psalm 110, we hear God talking to God again. And David saying, God the Father said this to God the Son, and he is my Lord. And here are the oracles. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The right hand was the position of power. God the Father is saying to God the Son, sit at my right hand. And you are going to sit here until all the enemies are put under your feet. That is a term of complete subjugation. He is saying, God the Father said to God the Son, you are going to take a kingly role for time and eternity. And then he says, if you look down uh, later on the passage, the Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he quotes around that in your text. That's the second oracle. You are not just a king. You are going to be a priest as well. So then it says, after the order of Melchizedek. What in the world does that mean? All right, we're going to buckle those thinking calves back on. I'm going to try to synopsize it for you. It's a pretty phenomenal concept. There is only one story about this guy named Melchizedek, and it's in Genesis 14. And as David read his scrolls, he would have read about Melchizedek. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. Hebrews says we don't know much of anything about him. We do know this, that there was a time where there was some battle between some kings, if you read in Genesis 14, and they fought each other, and the good guys kind of got beat by the bad guys. Well, Abraham heard about it because his brother Lot was actually captured by the bad guys. Abraham hears it, gets his 318 mighty men, runs over, kicks tail, beats the bad guys, and brings them all back together. And they have this little conversation with a couple of the kings that had been defeated in Abraham. The first king that walks up to Abraham is Sodom, the king of Sodom. And he says, hey, I want to I pay you for this. And Abraham says, nope, I'm not going to let uh, a pagan king make me rich. Keep your money, keep your stuff. I'm not taking a thing from you. Even though Abraham could have gotten a lot of money from him. Well, then there was the king of Salem sitting next to him named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek said, here's some bread and here's some wine. And David took it. 
And then David turned around and gave that king 10% of everything he owned in the, in the battle. And then Melchizedek gave a blessing to, to uh, Abraham. Why did he say no to the pagan king and yes to Melchizedek? Melchizedek was the king of Salem, otherwise known later on as Jerusalem. And Salem is shalom, which means peace. Melchizedek was the king of Jerusalem before it became Jerusalem, and he was the king of peace. <laughs> this is MDiv territory. But you understand that he's saying this king up in heaven was going to be a king after the order of Melchizedek. Why is that important? Because prior to the Aaronic priesthood, you could be priest and you could be king. When the Aaronic priesthood was instituted, you could only be priest or king. And this, this rule that I was going to come about, Psalm 110, was going to be after the order of Melchizedek. It was going to be better than the Aaronic priesthood. This person could be priest and could be king. We don't see that very often, do we? We don't see leaders who can be priest and who can be king. But Psalm 110 makes it very clear. This person is going to be an unusual leader. When we actually see pictures of priest and king together, we love it. Amen. We actually would not elect Mr. Rogers as president. We love his priestliness. We would really doubt his foreign policy, <laughs> right? I mean, if the guy's like nursing trolleys through this thing and doing puppets, I'm not sure we want him negotiating peace in the Middle East, right? We love that priestly side, though. This picture went viral a couple years back of a New York City cop uh, buying boots for a homeless man. Why did this go viral? I mean, people are helped by the homeless and given boots every single day in our country. It's because it was a cop. It was a police officer. It was a kingly position of power acting priestly. You see how rare it is for us to see these kind of pictures? Amen. So what is Psalm 110 saying? There is an oracle being spoken that one day God the Father will ask the Son to sit at his right hand and exercise priestly kingship over the world, and this priest king would execute final justice once and for all over the face of the entire earth. Every king that stood against up, up against him would be smitten and abolished. And if you, were, if you were studying first century, everybody knew this story. So then Jesus actually comes. And he begins his journey as a human being. And he starts out acting as a priestly king or a kingly priest. What do we see out of his kingship? The Bible says he spoke, and when he spoke, it was as one with authority and not like the scribes. Why? He was king of the law. I know how we should live. He turned water into wine, right? He was king over the water. He was king over the party. He had power over the wind and the waves. He could speak, and the storm would stop. That was him being a king. He could take five loaves and two fishes, and feed 5,000 people. He's saying, I'm king over nature. I'm king over the food production. Amen. And then he goes and he brings Lazarus back from the dead. He's saying, I am king of life, and I am king of death. And I can cast demons out of people. I am king over all the evil in the world. Amen. And Nicodemus comes up to him and says, oh, hey, I've been watching what you're doing. And nobody can do these things unless they're from God. 
right? There's this reminiscent thought of, are you the Psalm 110 guy? Because you're doing stuff nobody else did. Are you the my Lord talking there? But then he was a priest too. The Bible says he wept at the death of Lazarus. Why would he weep when he's got the power to snap his fingers and Lazarus come out of the grave? Because he was a priest. He, he had this devotional heart for his creation. Amen. He sat and taught the people the ways of God. He forgave people their sins. He prayed to the Father on our behalf. He washed the feet of the disciples. He laid himself down on the body of the dead girl and brought her to life. He said, come unto me, you who labor, and I will give you rest. This is the priestly side of Jesus. And nobody knew what to do with him. We don't see pictures of leadership like that. And the sad thing was is they didn't really like it. They didn't like this royal priest. They had a picture of who this priest king would be, and Jesus didn't fit the mold. They wanted a king, but they wanted him to ride in on a horse as a conquering champion and push Rome out. And here he comes in on a donkey? Right. What? A baby donkey? They wanted someone that, that, that they could control in the priesthood, not somebody who'd walk into the temple and flip over tables. Amen. They wanted a priest who would be in on the deal, who would let the corruption kind of continue. And so what did they do? They killed him. Killed him. The Psalm 110 that everybody knew. Everybody knew the story. Everyone was looking for. When he actually came, they're like, we don't want that. That doesn't match up to our ideal. So I ask you today, do you want him? Because he hadn't changed. I've listened to this podcast and it talks about the fact that, that politics is the new religion in America. We moved into a post-Christian society and now we put all of our hope into the halls of power. I can tell you this right now, I don't care what your political persuasions are, Jesus is going to offend them. He is going to trample over them. And I actually think if you were to walk into American Christianity today, they would not elect him. In fact, they might kill him again. People get more passionate about politics than they do about worship. They get more angry about Donald Trump than their own personal idolatry. We think that there's a savior in the White House, or we want a savior to get into the White House. Folks, that is just not going to happen. Amen. There is no leader ever in the history of our country and in the future of our country who can be the priest king that we want. Amen. Not one. There is no king <laughs> who will ever be the priest king. Get your hopes in the right place, folks. Amen. He will not fit the right-wing agenda. Jesus' immigration policy would tick off the Republican Party. And when they talk about gun rights, he would keep telling them, put the sword back in the sheet. This is not the way it's going to go. He would not have voted for the Get Tough on Crime bill. He would care about the world he created and the trash in the oceans. He would, he would talk about it, Right? He's not going to fit the left-wing agenda either. He would care about women's health, but also the life of unborn babies. Amen. He would care that marriage is between a man and a woman. He would, he would try to uh, talk to corrupt unions and say, you started with the idea of helping the laborer, and now you've stockpiled stuff for yourselves. He, he's got enough to offend every single person and their beliefs. He'll upset both parties on tax policy. 
Should we tax more or tax less? Jesus said, just give more of your money to people that have need. Oh, I don't do that. You know? He won't spend his time mandating minimum wage hikes. He'd be telling employers, love your employees like you love yourself. Amen. He wouldn't spend a lot of time on welfare policy. He'd be basically telling the church, step up and do your job, right? So there's enough in there for us to realize that this priest king walking into our doors would probably challenge a lot of our assumptions. Do you want him? Do you want him? Before you say amen too loud, let me read to you what Eugene Peterson, who just passed on to be with the Lord, said. He said, the voices that command the largest audience in our American culture are spokesmen for the ego, sometimes the religious ego, but nevertheless, the ego, deep-rooted, me first, distortions of our humanity have been institutionalized in our economics and sanctioned by our psychologies. And now we have gotten ourselves a religion in the same style, a religion that will augment our human potential and a gospel that will make us feel good. We want prayers that bring us daily benefits in the form of a higher standard of living with occasional miracles to relieve our boredom. We come to the Bible as consumers rummaging through text to find something at a bargain. We come to worship as gourmets of the emotional, thinking that the numinous might provide a nice addition to sunsets and symphonies. We read, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, and are tranquilized. We read, he does not deal with us according to our sins, and we decide we've probably been too hard on ourselves. Then we read, the Lord says, the Lord has sworn, he's talking the oracles in Psalm 110 right there, and we reach for the newspaper to find out how the stock market is doing. Do we want him? When you receive Jesus, you receive him as priest and king in your life for complete lordship in every single area. And what he says goes. And even if it offends your culture and offends the direction that things are going, he's priest and he is king. And when he's king, folks, he says some pretty stark stuff. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Give of your stuff. Be faithful to your spouse. Don't lust. Deny yourself. Climb up on a cross. Forgive people. Do unto others the way they do to you. Love your enemies. Don't judge other people. Pay your taxes. Watch and pray. Make disciples. Wash feet. That's the king. He has dominant control. And when you submit to his lordship, you're saying, I'm going to do my best by the grace of God to do what he commands. I just started thinking through how we practice our faith, and I I just did a little glimpse of what are the top 20 songs sung in churches through CCLI, a licensing agency, and they rank last week what were the top 20 songs sung across the country. And I looked at the top 20, and I thought, are they mainly priestly in nature? Jesus is my priest, and I have that devotional side? Or are they kingly in nature? The Lord has said. What do you think the top 20 songs would have been dominated by? The priestly nature of Jesus and his forgiving grace? Or his kingly nature? What do you think? I thought the same thing. And we are all wrong. The vast majority are kingly themes, and we're going to sing one to close out the sermon today. But if you start looking into the text, all right, there's one, the king of my heart. We've sung this here. Good song. You know this song. Uh, Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from. 
Oh, he is my song. Sing it again. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide, the ransom for my life. Oh, he is my because you are Oh, you are good. Nice. What's the problem with that song? It's not about the king. It's priestly words with a kingly title. Let the king of my heart be the fountain I drink from. That's priestly thoughts, right? So we can sit there and sanitize thinking we're singing about the king when we're really sitting there and singing about the priest. Can you imagine if you sang it this way? Let the king of my heart take away my lust for porn. Send me trials for my growth and help me give my money away. Because you're the boss. The boss. Yeah. Right? That's king stuff. Right? We don't like the king stuff. Right? I mean, man, as long as you're the shadow where I hide and the ransom for my life, that's, we're all good. The moment you start telling me what to do, boom, I'm out. Right? And I think the king thing, and we can still sing that song here, believe me, the, the pastor's not against that song, okay? But it needs to be like, Big, bold, king, right? And we struggle. I mean, I guarantee you our attendance is down today because the Bronco game started at 11 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> Keep your phone in your pocket. Folks, the, let me just rationalize. The season's already over. And you're, you're going to go, oh, no, no, no. If we win every game and the rest of the NFL loses every game, we'll get in. You've been co-opted, friends. We have DVR. You can record the game. You can watch every single play. And people will still skip the assembly of believers to watch a stupid Bronco game. And all you self-righteous people that are checking your phones every 10 minutes, you know, it's you too, right? We value our freedom. We don't like pastors telling us what to do. We don't like the word telling us what to do. And we highlight our freedom at all costs. Folks, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you're going to have to deal with the fact that he has claims on your life for what you do. Amen. We want a God, but we don't want a king. Let me ask you this. Do you want him as a priest? Do you want him as a priest? Oh, we want him as a priest. I mean, we need the Mr. Rogers. We need the Father Picture of the prodigal coming home with his arms outstretched with an embrace and a welcome and forgiveness and empowerment. But folks, you can take advantage of the fact that you just think that just because God accepts you the way you are, that he doesn't want you to change. As pastors, we see this all the time. Vulnerability has been so highlighted in the culture, but there's very little progress actually solving your issues. So you want to be in a small group where we hear your pain all the time. The moment they push on growth, they're being judgmental. Amen. Folks, the priest doesn't want you just to wallow in your shame. He wants you to grow. Amen. He wants to come around you in a shame culture and give you this identity and see you walk the way you were created to walk. Pick your head up, he would say. Amen. 
I, I, I was praying through this text. I was like, Lord, what, what is it for me here? You know? And I think as I look at my life and in our ministry, you know, after 11 years, you know, in the early stages, it was really easy to lay it all down and to, because you just didn't know if we were going to survive or not. But man, when God gives you a building and it gives you a staff and you, you have money you can give away at Jubilee and you have all that stuff, I say, Lord, I want to live a life that when people examine my life, they think that person is marching to the beat of a different drummer. And there is somebody giving commands and authority because he doesn't live like the culture with his time, his money, his piety. There's something different about that person. And I feel like I could lose that edge of this priestly uh, king in my life, and I don't want it because I still want him. He is the perfect king, the perfect leader that I'm looking for. He's the compassionate priest you've always wanted. And he walked into this mess of this world and he said, I'm the one, come and follow me. And this is not to a life of ministry, this is to a life of joy. Joy is here. The older you get, the more mature you get in the faith, you realize that freedom is actually found in submission. Freedom is found in giving yourself restraints. And that when you submit to the body of Christ and you become a covenant partner, is how we talk about it here, you're submitting to spiritual leadership. You're covenanting with a bunch of group of, of, of other people and saying, I want to walk with you, folks. That is freedom. Amen. Because now, hopefully, when you go off the rails, you've got an army of people that are going to be the hound of heaven in your life and chase you down and say, come back. He is this king. When he leaves, he says, in Hebrews 7, 26, it talks about Jesus as priest. He is the greatest priest. For such a high priest was fitting for us who's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, has become higher than the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day anymore, first for his own sins and for the sins of the people. That's what the Aaronic priest had to do. No, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Amen. This is the great priest. And we now have a great high priest He's gone to the heavens. Folks, if you were to walk into the throne of heaven right now, you would see uh, Jesus in flesh and blood, probably six feet tall, sitting right there at the, th the, the hand of God. And you would walk up to him and you'd be able to touch him because he is uh, the, the sympathetic high priest, the Bible says. And he was tempted in every way like you are, but without sin. So walk up to the throne of grace with confidence and there you will find mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. Before he left this earth, he said, there be, I'm the king. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. I am the fulfillment of Psalm 110. But he didn't come to a throne. He came to a cross. He didn't administer the sacrifice. He became the sacrifice. This was the anchor point for the entire early church. When they woke up to the fact that Psalm 110 was talking about this man, Jesus, and they killed him, Peter stands up at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and he basically says, guys, he was the one. God has made him Lord in Christ, and, and Peter refers to Psalm 110 at Pentecost. says that was the one, and you can imagine why 3,000 people came to Christ. And then in Acts 7, the persecution began. Stephen is a deacon of the church, and they go to stone him. And they bring him outside, and they pick up the rocks to bash his skull in. And Stephen's last sermon was like, 
This was the one. He is sitting in authority. He is far above all principalities and powers. And the Bible says that as the rocks were being ready to be hurled, he looked up. What did he see? The son of man standing at the right hand of God. I mean, it was like that first martyr. Jesus is sitting there at the throne of power. And all of a sudden he looks down and he sees Stephen and he stands up. Because that's the moment. Why would you ever stand up and let someone bash your skull in? Unless you were enraptured with the thought that there's only one opinion in the universe that actually matters. And that is the Son of Man seated in power who gave his life for us. There is coming a day, friends where Psalm 110 will be ultimately fulfilled and God will smite his enemies and Satan will be forever banished. And Advent is the season where we look to that. And we say, come Lord Jesus. And I say to you that with all the years you have left on earth, follow him, submit to him. It'll be the greatest joy of your life. The essence of sin, John Stott said, is we put ourselves where God deserves to be. The essence of the gospel is Jesus put himself where we deserve to be. And our great high priest, our great king did that for us. And I close with the good news. The good news is this. If you accept him, your life is completely different. And and here's how deep the theme of Psalm 110 goes. Revelation 1.6 says this. He has made us kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 1 Peter 2.9 says you are a royal priesthood. Do you know how awesome I made it seem what a real priest, king kind of leader would be? The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't rescue you from your sins for your personal salvation. He makes you a priestly king, a kingly priest, somebody who has those qualities. As we look at him, the Bible says we are transformed to be kingly priests in our world. You are a holy nation, the Bible says. So you have the power of Christ upon you, and you have this priestly ministry upon you, and that is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. That was the second through 3.18. When you stare at Jesus, and I would say the primary way you're going to stare at Jesus is through the Word of God, and when you stare at the Word, the Bible says the Holy Spirit transforms you to be like Him. You know how important that is? If you have a power over any person, child, employee, committee, it is really important that you try to be a priestly king in your leadership position. Amen. You know, parenting goes this way. I have a, I have, I have a child who will remain unnamed, uh, who fell into some difficulties and trials and sins this week. And I discovered it, and so I pulled this child aside. And man, my kingly speech was hot. It was good. Uh, And I was delivering it with precision. Spent 22 years of parenting, I know how to do that thing. And I was halfway through the speech, and this voice in my head says, do you think he needs more king right now? Or do you think he needs priest? I was like, I want to keep going king, man. King is my natural tendency. That's my personality, man. I'm an Enneagram 8. And God's like, Jason, I hope you can be a better parent. 
than just to constantly parent out of your eightness and your challenger. Because I'm telling you right now, uh, your son needs a priest in his life. I was like, well, that's not near as natural for me, you know? I thought, oh God, I need to stare upon Jesus in the word to see this beautiful mixture because I am to be a vice regent of our Lord to sit there and in the, in the authority he has given to me, especially with those he has created, that I must model Christ's likeness in how I do that. And I say that as a hope to you, that Jesus wants to do that in you. He thinks you have the potential to be him. And he wants you to be. This is what the church should be. And I close with this. There's a little verse in the middle of Psalm 110 that gets overlooked. But Eugene Peterson blessed me with it this week as I read his passage on Psalm 110. Verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And Peterson quotes the Ronald Knox translation, which in verse 3 is read, Thou art my son, born like dew before the day star arises. That the womb of the morning of our great Jesus was the womb of Mary, who almost is in a picture to show exactly the opposite of worldly power. The infant Jesus was born before the foundation of the world. It was like the dew of the morning. It kind of rose up from the grass, and like you didn't see it come down, it was inconspicuous. It was glistening in the dawn's early light. It was uncontaminated. Easy not to notice because we're used to rainfalls. But this king and priest came in the womb of the morning with unspoiled intimacy and tenderness and the splendor of a king and the holiness of a priest are fused in the early morning birth of a child to be loved and cherished. And this is what we celebrate in this season. Providence, is this the leader you're looking for? I hope I've made the case to say that he is the leader you're looking for and he wants to transform you to be just like him. Let's stand together. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come forward. If this has stirred something up in you, I encourage you to come and pray with a member of our prayer team. And I don't know what hit with you, but let's just start the process by submitting yourself to a prayer team member and say, would you just pray God's priestly grace over my life where I'm falling short? Would you pray God's kingly reign over me in areas where I'm rebelling? Because I want to be like him. I want to be like this great priestly king. And Abby's going to lead us in a song that I think echoes. It's a contemporary song here. It's one of those top 20. But I think it actually gives a beautiful picture of what Psalm 110 is actually talking about. We'll sing that in worship as we close today.